Turn, if you would, to John chapter 11. Continue our study through this fourth gospel. <clears throat> Considering the end of this chapter, the events after the resurrection of Lazarus. John 11, 45 to 57 today. Sometimes as we study the Bible, we perhaps get the idea that we're talking about an unreal world, a, a, a different world than the rough-and-tumble, hard-hitting world where we have to live and do business. And that's wrong, though. In our text this morning, we see God working in the same arena, in the midst of the same sinister forces that we hear about on the evening news every night, the world of government leaders, sometimes corrupt, a world of deals made, sometimes behind closed doors of public opinion, sometimes feared and sought and sometimes ignored, a world of political expediency that seems to control everything. That's the same world that we live in. It's the same world where God is moving, where the Jesus lived and well, the gospel took place. Our text this morning is generally not a very pretty sight. Hopefully, as we consider its ugliness, we will see the contrast when we get on to the last part of the, the, the awesome beauty of the gospel of God's grace that he's worked out in the midst of this ugliness of the world that we live in and that Christ lived in. Well, let me read the text right on the heels of Lazarus being raised, verse 45. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Two truths I want us to see here. We'll spend a good bit of time on the first one. The two truths, one about the Jewish leaders and one about the Lord. The first is this. Unbelief gets ugly. 
unbelief gets ugly. You know, when I was a kid, I loved those illustrations. I think they're in World Book Encyclopedia. You might still be there where you have a whole series of transparent pages. The one I remember is the one on the human body. And the first page you would see this smiling face and the skin, and then if you lift that up, you just see all the whole circulatory system. Then you lift that page up and you see the whole muscular structure. You lift that page up and you see the skeleton. Kind of like seeing the human body a slice at a time. Well, I think in this uh, text here, we kind of see that kind of picture of unbelief. We see an anatomy of unbelief. We see unbelief developing a slice at a time. Now, it's important for us to do that because, frankly, in our culture, in our time, we're so tolerant, we kind of think that unbelief is really no big deal. Some people believe, some people don't believe, but it's really no big deal. In fact, sometimes unbelief is made to look so broad-minded and so tolerant and so educated and sophisticated that we actually begin to think that maybe unbelief, unbelieving kind of thoughts deal better, more honorably with sophisticated, complex issues than those simpletons who believe the Bible and think God's a player. Here we see unbelief showing its true colors. Here we see the moral tailspin that begins when one rejects Jesus, rejects God as he reveals himself to him the Savior. You see where that leads, what that results in. Here we see that unbelief looks so simple at first, but it gets ugly. Well, as we lift the first sheet here, we see that unbelief kind of is a thing that needs to be propped up all the time. Our text, unbelief, first appears up in verse 46. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and many people believe, but there's some who don't. Don't know why, they just didn't believe what they saw, or for some reason they didn't believe. So what did they do? Well, they went on their way and said, hey, some people, if you want to believe that, that's all right. If I don't believe it, it's okay. Oh, no, that's not what happened at all. They didn't just go on their way. They, for some reason, felt obligated to go and tell the Pharisees, to report Jesus to the authorities, though everyone knew the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus. See, unbelief's like that. It has to be propped up. It, it, it has to find... Uh, 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 a kindred voice somewhere in some other unbeliever. So they went and told the Pharisees, and so the Pharisees, when they heard it, what did they say? Oh, well, hey, he's one of the teachers, he's a rabbi out there, and he's teaching, and everybody doesn't agree. Oh, no, that's not what happened. The Pharisees went to tell the Sadducees, the chief priests. The Sadducees are the Pharisees' worst enemies. They don't agree with them on any point of theology. Oh, but when it came to Jesus, well, we can work with the Sadducees. In fact, before it was done, the unbelieving Pharisees worked not only with the Pharisees, but the, with the Sadducees, but they collaborated with the, with the uh, Roman governor, Pilate, and, and, and with the notorious King Herod. All but you see, unbelief is just like that. It just is hard to fight against God. It's hard to just walk away. It's hard to trash God's truth. We need some encouragement. We need some friends shouting in our ears, yeah, that's right, that's right, so that we can dare to take on God and say, I don't believe that. Beware when you start turning to your friends for support, for your unbelief. 
the first sign that your unbelief's getting a little ugly. But it doesn't stop there. You see, the unbelief also is afraid to look at the truth. It won't look at the evidence. Interesting thing happens here in verse 47 and 48. The Sanhedrin is called together. Now, we don't maybe know much about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the formal governing body of Israel. It's like a combination of the whole Congress and the, and the executive branch, the, the president, the vice president, and the whole Supreme Court, all together in one body. And it has... Uh, it had, had jurisdiction over not just the, 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 the civil, uh, it was not just the civil authority, the political life of Israel, but also about the religious life. So it's like all the church leaders at the same time. So it's like the president, the Congress, and the Supreme Court, and, and, and the elders of your church, and, 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 and the synod, and everybody, all in 70 guys. Tremendous authority. So here they come together, responsible for governing the people of God. And what's the agenda? Well, there's this guy out here, Jesus, who's doing miraculous things, many, many miraculous things. In fact, we just heard that he raised a man from the dead. What are we going to do with him? What are we going to do? If we just let this go, well, everybody's going to be believing in a minute, and, 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 and the Romans are going to come, and they're going to upset the apple cart here. Now, how should the, how should the religious leaders the governors of God's people, how should they respond if someone is out there in God's name raising people from the dead? Well, you would think they would say, Hallelujah, God has visited us in power. Oh, no. What are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with them? The Romans aren't going to like this. They're afraid of the Romans. Now think about the absurdity of this. If Jesus is really here raising people from the dead, if God has visited them with such power, who cares about the Romans? <laughs> All that matters is, is Jesus really true? Did he really do this? But interestingly, that's the one question they never ask. In all of this discussion, there's never the question, could he be true? Could he be Messiah? No. You see, unbelief is that way. It refuses to look at the evidence. It's afraid of the truth. Afraid of the Romans, but even more afraid of the truth. Oh, beware of the absurdity of unbelief that won't even look at the evidence. Oh, but it gets worse. Why won't they look at the evidence? Because unbelief is consumed with protecting self. See, I guess in a sense it might be a noble thing that they don't want the land to be troubled by more intrusion by the Romans, and so we have to watch what goes on here because we don't want Roman interference in our life. Maybe that's a noble thing if that's what really were happening, but that's not what really is happening. The end of verse 48 they say the Romans will come and do what? Take away our place and our nation. These leaders had worked out a rather cozy relationship with the Romans. The Romans were there. They were present. They were in charge, but they gave the Sanhedrin a wide berth. 
They basically let them govern their own affairs. So here's the hidden agenda behind all the pious pronouncements. They were not about to let some lowly carpenter from the backwoods of Galilee come in here and mess up their careers. They had a vested interest here in the peace and the status quo of Israel because we're doing all right here. Bruce Milne put it this way. Thus the guardians of the sacred traditions of Israel were reduced to the level of political functionaries as we might meet any day of the week in the parliaments and boardrooms of the world. The primary issue is not one of principle, but of expediency. Right has become equated with the avoidance of trouble and the preservation of their hold on power. Thus the cause of the living God, the glory of the age-old revelation from the patriarchs through the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, it's all mortgaged in one sorry, impassioned hour to save their political skins. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, beware of your preoccupation with your commitment to yourself. It wars against your soul. When trouble or discomfort or change begin to impress themselves on you and begin to crowd you and make you uncomfortable, you see, you and me are, you and I are tempted to just say, get rid of that irritant no matter what. But before you do, think, maybe this is God's doing. Maybe the Lord is the one who is troubling me. Maybe the Lord is the one that's pressing me here. Maybe this is his handiwork in my life. For you see, every radical change, everything that would totally upend the pres presumptions of our life, anything of far-reaching, God-sized kind of concern in our life would certainly be threatening to us. It's inconceivable that God might turn our whole life around without it being threatening at first. It's unbelief that automatically pushes it away. It says, no, I'm preserving myself like I am, like I like me. That's what they did. Unbelief got kind of ugly in its self-centeredness. Well, but it gets worse. After a while, unbelief is justifying the unthinkable. Sanhedrin met and they talked for a while. They discussed things and after a while, Caiaphas, the high priest, stood up, spoke up. Now the Sadducees, and it was a Sadducee, most chief priests were all Sadducees. The Sadducees, according to Josephus, a, a, a Jewish historian, had quite a reputation for being rude and inconsiderate. And Caiaphas fits the bill. He stands up and says, all oh, you guys, you don't even know what you're talking about. Great way in a discussion amidst the council of God's, the elders of God's people. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's Caiaphas. But it wasn't his style that's of concern here. It was the substance of what he said, the solution he proposed. Look at verse 50. You do not realize this is Caiaphas talking. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. 
You understand what he just proposed? It would be better for us to kill this guy than for our national interest, our status quo, to be threatened. Surely he didn't say that. Jesus is an innocent man. There are no charges against him. He's had no trial. He's not even there in the room to defend himself. Really suggesting that he be, be condemned to die? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Kill him. Get rid of him. No matter what the cost, it would be better to just get rid of him. Of course, as G. Campbell Morgan points out, it would not do to put it like that, so he put it on the ground of political expediency and national well-being. Can you picture this situation? Caiaphas is the high priest of God. The heir of Aaron, Moses' brother. The only one on the face of the earth that can go into the Holy of Holies. Where the Shekinah glory dwells, where God meets his people. And he's talking to the chief priests who minister in the temple and to the biblical scholars, the scribes, who knew and memorized whole books of the Bible. And to the leaders, the wise sages, the elders of God's people, the holy people Israel. And here they are gathered in their holy council. And the high priest says, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Unbelief gets ugly. It justifies the unthinkable. You know, Caiaphas didn't get there in a day, folks. He wasn't this holy, righteous man one day and the next day he's in proposing that they murder Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's a little at a time. It's a little compromise here. A little occasion when principle is set aside. A few days of ignoring God's truth. A little searing of the conscience. We violate a little command and then a bigger and then a bigger and a more frequent compromise till finally a whole sense of justice is lost the soul is calloused and all that seems to matter is what's politically expedient and I ask you point blank have you started walking down that road with Caiaphas? You see, I suspect that if we were honest with ourselves, that there are little things that used to sting our conscience every time we thought about them or did them, and now they don't bother us anymore. We've justified what we used to think was unthinkable. That's how unbelief works. Slides down down and down till you're doing things you never would have dreamed that you would do. Behold the ugliness of subtle unbelief that can justify even murder. Well, 
as these leaders listen to Caiaphas, it's clear he's calling for outright murder. Now here they are, the holy men of God, the leaders of God's people, those entrusted with the Torah, the word of God, those entrusted as the shepherds of Israel. Who will stand up first and say, no way! This has got to stop! Well, we read in vain. No one draws the line. No one says, no! No one stands and says, but what about God's law? We are the guarantors, guarantors of justice. No, I can't be part of this. See, that's how unbelief is. It begins to justify the unthinkable, and after a while it actively pursues wickedness. And that's what happened. Verse 53, we read, from that day on, they plotted, actually the word is resolved. From that day on they resolved to take his life. It was decided. The sentence was passed right here. Oh, Jesus had not been charged and tried and found guilty and now being sentenced. No, Jesus is sentenced to die. Now we have to find some charges and have a trial in order to just justify it. Unbelief is pretty ugly, isn't it? It ends up in an overt commitment to do wickedness. Again, I challenge you. Where would you draw the line? If you'd stood in that court, sat in that court that day, would you have been the one who stood up against all your peers and said, No! He may be the high priest, but no! I won't be part of this. This is wrong. Well, do you stand up now and say no? You see, if you don't stand up now and draw the line and say no, what makes you think you would have then? Unbelief slides down, spins further down until it's actively promoting wickedness, being part of it without objection. Well, it has one more step, one more little page to lift as we see the anatomy of unbelief, and that is that unbelief isn't, isn't content with just doing wickedness, it recruits partners. You know, we say it's not so. We say, hey, if I don't believe it, that's my business. You know, you believe whatever you want. I, I, I don't believe it. I'm not against you, you understand. It's just that I have my own opinion. That's how we think about unbelief. But in reality, all of us begin to pursue and recruit and sell what we believe. And that's what these men did. They had rejected Jesus and resolved to put him to death, and then they said, well, hey, we've got the power. We need to get uh, some help here. And so verse 57 says, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Here they used the power of their office to basically put out a contract on Jesus and to require as the law of the land, as the, uh, as the, the edict of, the, of the, the executive order of the, of the leaders of Israel, to require that if you knew where Jesus was, 
and you didn't turn him in, you were guilty. That's how unbelief is. You see, it doesn't just do wickedness. It seeks partners. It, it wants to have other people doing wickedness. You ever wonder why if people are getting drunk or doing drugs, there's so much pressure. They've got to get other people involved. Got to have their friends getting drunk too. Well, I remember when I was in the Air Force and guys got drunk a lot. It bothered them so bad that I wouldn't get drunk with them. It, I don't, why would it bother them? So I sit next to them and they're getting smashed and I'm being sober. Why does that bother them? That's how unbelief is. It just goes down down. It's not even content to just do what I want to do. It's got to suck somebody else into. Misery loves company and so does wickedness. Unbelief gets ugly. Ugly. Halloween's coming next week. And in a celebration that baffles our minds, especially why Christians would participate, Nice people will dress up in the most hideous, wicked kinds of disguises. Pretending to be some terrible thing. Of course, we're not afraid because we know who's inside the costume and it's just a big joke. You want something really scary? Here's your Halloween nightmare. The most wicked, hideous, murderous people dressed up to look like religious leaders. To look like your best friends. Your neighbors. Now that's scary. That's what was going on in John 11 and it's what goes on today. Because you see unbelief though it looks so innocuous down deep is ugly. It is ugly. We can dress it up and put a nice face on it, but it's ugly. Now, I've spent a lot of time on this this morning, an inordinate amount of time, because I want you to understand, as we peel back the anatomy of unbelief a layer at a time, I want you to understand that there is no such thing as some neutral ground where you can stand. We, 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 we like to think that there is. We insist that if I don't believe, it's, just, it's not that I'm hostile, it's just that I'm indifferent. I don't care about such things. I'm aloof from the whole. Some people believe, some people don't believe. I'm, I opt out. Now, we like to say that's how it is. But here we see that that's not how it is. And throughout the whole Bible, we see that that's not how it is. There are those who believe and become disciples. And there are those who do not believe. And that becomes ugly rebellion. And there's no place in the middle to stand. It's only space. Either you will be a covenant keeper or you'll be a covenant breaker. Those are the only options. You either will bow your head and your knees before God in submission or you raise your fist and fight against him and, 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 and will lose your own soul if necessary to bring him down. That's just how unbelief is. It has a smiley face. But underneath is rottenness and ugliness right to the core. Oh, be careful. Be careful. Little bits of unbelief look so easy. Watch yourself. Guard your heart. 
Above everything, Proverbs says, guard your heart. Because unbelief gets unbelief. Well, that's all pretty bad news so far. But here in the midst of that terrible mess of a situation, there's a one terrific piece of news that you have to hear before we finish with this passage. And that's this. That no one thwarts God's plans, though. God is in control, and no one thwarts his plans. You know the old saying, plan your work and work your plan? It sounds so good, but you try to do it, and you can plan your work all right, and you find out that working your plan is a little harder. There are just always things that go wrong, aren't there? Everyone has to adjust and to change the plan and to compromise with your opponents and to uh, work around obstacles that you can't get rid of and to live with some defects and learn from your mistakes and you hope that somehow on the other end of your work you end up with something close to where you originally started. But to just say, I'm going to plan it and work the plan, nobody has that luxury. Except God does. God does. He doesn't adjust. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't deal in contingencies. He doesn't work out some collaboration with his opponents. He doesn't work around obstacles. He plans and he accomplishes his plan. So that we read in Ephesians 1.11, he works out everything, everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. No one thwarts God's plan. Here, John, even as he unfolds the anatomy of unbelief, as he shows the depravity of the wickedness of the, of the leaders of Israel, even as he traces the events which are turning the, Jesus over into the hands of the wicked that will in, end up putting him on the cross to be crucified, nevertheless, he wants to make it clear that God has not relinquished his plan and he's not relinquished, relinquished control, that he is absolutely in control and he is working his plan of salvation right on schedule. Specifically, we see it because no one can thwart God's plans because the wicked are in his hands. The wicked are in his hands. You know, there are a few things that we view so much as our that we value so much as our free will. We just want to maintain our independence. I can make my decisions and I don't want anybody interfering. There's no such thing. God overrules in everybody's decisions. That's what we find here, verse 50 and 51. Caiaphas says. You do not realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. And then John inserts an explanation. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Now, it would seem to us that if Caiaphas is a man of unbelief, and he was, and if Caiaphas is filled with wickedness and a murderous motive, and he was, that then whatever office he might have held among God's people would be meaningless. But folks, God gives the meaning to things, not people. And even while God hates Caiaphas' wickedness, 
He wants us to know that he himself is in control. Caiaphas is not in control. He never relinquishes control to Caiaphas. And so as Caiaphas begins to speak words which reveal the, 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 the depravity of his soul, God makes sure that they have meaning beyond what he ever imagined. Oh, make no mistake, when Caiaphas spoke of Jesus dying in place of the nation, he had nothing but murder on his mind. He spoke out of his own wicked heart. He was not some dumb beast and God was putting words in his mouth. He wasn't surprised at what he said. He said exactly what he wanted to say. But God is greater than Caiaphas' wickedness. And so as John point out, God caused him to say things that had another meaning. To say it in such a way that it didn't just tell about his own wicked intentions, but it revealed God's plan. G. Campbell Morgan explains, Caiaphas had said more than he understood, more than he intended. God overruled and compelled him when he was uttering a thing of diabolical obscenity at the same time in the same words, to utter a prophecy full of light and beauty. Thus, Morgan goes on, thus we have the most tragic and dastardly and diabolical speech on record, and side by side with it, a statement that the devilry is gripped and mastered by God until the very thing is transfigured and becomes the statement of the gospel of hope for a dead world. You see, you can't thwart God's plan, for he holds even the wicked in his hands. How big is your God? Is he that big? Is he big enough to encompass such things? Well, we're not saying Caiaphas was up and on a string here. Caiaphas spoke out of his own background, of his own years of training, his own years of unfaithfulness, his own motives. He spoke thinking, he spoke freely. He made the decisions. God held him accountable. But even in his most wicked act so far, God still overrules because no one thwarts God's plans. We're not saying God is the author of Caiaphas's wickedness. That's blasphemous to say that God could be the author of sin. We're saying that God's sovereignty is so great that even the willful wickedness of men cannot thwart it, cannot undo it, cannot present an obstacle to it. That God causes even the wickedness of men to praise him, though he holds them accountable for their wickedness. Oh, stand in awe of such a God. You can't comprehend that kind of sovereignty, but that's what the Bible teaches. It's not that God's in control when I let him have control. No, he's in control all the time. It's not that I'm a puppet on a string, and so therefore, if I do something wicked, it's really God's fault. Oh, no, he holds me accountable. God is absolutely sovereign. And he absolutely holds us accountable. 
I can't comprehend that, but that's the God of the Bible. That's how the apostles saw the death of Jesus. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, and he said, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's, listen to this, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And then he goes on. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Did Jesus go to the cross because wicked men hung him there? For which they must give an account before God? Or did Jesus go to the cross because God, before the foundations of the earth, decreed that he would go to the cross to pay for the sin of his people? Which? Yes. Both. Both. You cannot thwart God's plan. You can fight against him, but you can't win. You can try to figure out a way to get around him, but you'll only play into his hands. He's smarter than you. God is absolutely in control, and no one, no one can change his plan. So what is his plan? Well, here we have it. Here we, in, in, in the words of Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, we have the beauty of God's plan. His plan is that Christ would die instead of the nation. In fact, not only instead of the nation of Israel, but for those that God had chosen to be children of God from all over the world, that Christ would die in order to gather them to one, to himself, in one to himself. What the Spirit is teaching us here is what we call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. The sins of God's children will be transferred to Jesus, who on the cross then offers his life in payment and takes the penalty, the punishment for those sins, dies in our place, and by that perfect sacrifice our sins are paid for. God enables, makes a way to pull us and draw us to himself and make us his children, clean, forgiven, transformed into part of his family. And who's that for? Well, for the Jewish people of God, but also for those that God chose from every tribe and nation and family and clan around the world. Their identity is so certain in the mind of God that he calls them children of God here before Christ even died and before they're ever even called. But in God's mind, you see, he knows who are his. He knows who the Father has given to Christ. And those he goes to the cross to save. No one thwarts his plan. Finally, we see the truth of God's absolute control and the fact that no one can thwart his plan and in the timing of the work. When the contract was put out on Jesus here, well, he left and he went up to Ephraim. I don't think he was running scared, but you see, no one is going to set the clock of when Christ goes to the cross. He said again and again throughout the Gospel of John, my time has not yet come, and his time had not yet come. And so he moves out of their way. And so in verse 55 and 56, the people gather for the Passover, and they begin to speculate. It's quite a matter of public opinion. If Jesus is coming, actually the way they ask the question implies a negative answer. Jesus isn't coming, is he? He's not that stupid. He wouldn't come here, right? There's no way he would come to the Passover. Mm -mm. He's not going to come because everybody knew there was a contract out on him. Everyone knew that as soon as the first person saw him, he would be reported and arrested. The word was out. Meanwhile, God is setting the stage 
for it's Passover that's to be fulfilled in the death of Jesus. He is to be the final Passover lamb to protect his people from judgment and bring them deliverance just like happened back in Egypt those thousands of years before. Though they were certain that Jesus would not come, certainly he wouldn't come, certainly the leaders have thwarted any plan, he had to come to Passover, yet we will read in the first verse of the next chapter, six days before Passover, Jesus arrived. Because he's marching to the cross right according to schedule, and no one will thwart his plan to bring salvation to his people. So which side of God's plans are you on this morning? Do you rest securely in Jesus knowing that your salvation is not of yourself, but Jesus made himself an atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin and has called you to, yourself, to himself, and now your life is lived as a, in thanksgiving to him because out of his pure grace he's made you his own. So you delight in the fact that he's sovereign and he's in control because he's my God. And he cares for me and he saves me. Or does God's sovereignty grate on you a little bit? Why does he have to interfere in my life? I want my independence. I want my freedom. He's not going to tell me what to do. You see, that's how it is. You either bow to his lordship and delight in his sovereign control, or you fight against him and find that unbelief is so ugly, so ugly. Which is it? God is absolutely in control. No one thwarts his plan. Rest in that. Delight in that. Because to do otherwise is unbelief. And that's no small thing. It is ugliness. It is dastardly. It is heinous. It leads to death. Amen. Dear Father, I thank you for the reality that we read here, that you have come and you have worked out our salvation. You have brought us salvation, not in some sterile laboratory in heaven. But Lord, that you've come and you've entered into this mess of a fearful fallen place where we live, where the beauty and the good is so mixed with the evil and the ugly that you've endured the ugliness, the worst of unbelief. And right there, Lord, you've worked out our salvation by submitting yourself as the perfect sacrifice to die in our place that we might have life. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We don't begin to understand all these things, Father. You're too big for us. You're beyond our our. our highest imagination we cannot comprehend someone like you and yet we bow at your feet and say lord you are awesome in your wisdom and your power and your sovereignty and we rest in you and we rest in jesus our savior oh lord may that be the desire and the response of our heart forbid lord that we should dare to take you on i pray lord for anyone who who is silently, quietly rebelling and beginning to take you on, that you would turn our hearts around and grant to us grace of repentance. We might delight in you, not fight against you. Lord, take these truths.
truths from your word and apply them to us. May they be like seed planted deep in the soil of our heart that grows now. So we think about them. Grow your truth till it produces the fruit of holiness in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.